0: Father in heaven, thank you again for this special time. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Sabbath that's almost here. We pray and ask that you would lead our hearts and minds to Jesus, and God, that you would equip us to be better communicators, better witnesses, better ministers for you. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I'm still on. Okay, very good. Now, I want to share something with you. It's, a, it's kind of a, a funny story that Ravi Zacharias told. Anybody ever heard of Ravi Zacharias? Very interesting fellow. And uh, he told this story one day. He talked about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Anybody ever heard of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson? Okay, very good. He said one day they went out camping. And he said as they went camping, in the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes nudged Dr. Watson. He says, wake up. He says, look up. What do you see? And Dr. Watson, looking up at the sky, said... Astronomically, I can see that there are millions of stars and millions of galaxies. Theologically, I can see that God has created the universe. Then he said, meteorologically, I can see it's going to be a great day tomorrow. Orologically, he said, I can see it's a quarter past 1 a.m. Finally, Sherlock Holmes hits him and he says, Watson, you fool, someone stole the tent." The reason I say this is because oftentimes when you go to an apologetic seminar or you go to a seminar that's talking about defending your faith or how to communicate your faith, oftentimes it can be in very complex language. Anybody ever experienced that before? And then the difficulty is to try to translate that, that language or that information in a way that's understandable to common people. Well, I hope this seminar is going to be something that can be understood and through the Spirit of God it will be. Amen? Amen. However, I do have to warn you about two things. We will be covering some topics, and you may think to yourself, man, we're not spending enough time on that topic. Look, I want to be able to get you out of this place feeling like you have gained some knowledge, some tools that are useful. However, I also speak at a very fast pace. And so if it's too fast for you, you can listen to the audio recording later on, and you can slow it down to the speed you want. Amen? Very good. I also like to move. In fact, one day I actually put a pedometer on myself. Anybody know what a pedometer is? I actually clocked half a mile one day when I was preaching. Half a mile. One day I'm going to do one mile when I'm on stage. Well, getting to this topic, apologetics for a new generation, one day I was reading an article written by Greta Christensen. She's a well-known atheist blogger. She is somebody that does not like Christianity, does not like religion. She was challenged by somebody who commented on her post. And they said these words, what in the world would convince you to become a believer in God, a believer in religion? What would it take? What developments, what criteria could you list off that would ultimately convince you there is a God? And so she wrote her next article on this. It says these words. Okay, let me turn this thing on. Okay, very good. Unlikely developments that could convince this atheist to believe in God. Now, take a good look at this criteria. Number one, accurate prophecies in sacred texts. I mean, just think about that. She actually said that. She said, what would possibly convince me is that if you can find accurate, bona fide prophecy in sacred texts. And then notice what she says right here. Accurate science in religious texts. In other words, um, the scriptures or the religious texts are in harmony with the data that is found. Number three, the one successful religion. And this is interesting. Do you know how she defines the one successful religion? When the inheritance are not only happy, get this, but healthy. That's interesting, right? And then number four, inexplicably accurate information gained during near death experience. Guess what, friends? We got somebody who came back from the dead. Amen. And the last one an unambiguous message. Now, friends, let me ask you a question. What does the word unambiguous mean? It means clear. Now, where in the world do you think would be a good direction for Greta Christensen to turn? Okay, let's just think about this. Number one, accurate prophecy in sacred texts. Number two, accurate science in religious texts. Number three, a successful religion where the inheritance are not only happy, but they're healthy. Number four, inexplicably inexplicably accurate information gained during near death. In fact, you could even say this, someone who understands what happens after death. And the very last one, a clear message. Where might you direct this atheist blogger? Now, that's a question for you to answer later on. But I want you to understand something. What God has given us in the Seventh-day Adventist message is a very special thing. Amen? Amen. And this is a message that's constantly unfolding. And we need to understand more and more what God would have us to do. C.S. Lewis said these powerful words. He said, the question of being an apologist or someone who defends the Christian faith is not so much whether you use an apologetic in answering someone's question, but whether the apologetic you already use is a good one. You see, everyone is an apologist for something. The question is whether or not you are a good one. In fact, one day, I would think I was at the ASI several years ago, or GYC, or one of these seminars, and I sat down with, at lunch, and I was surrounded by all the seminar speakers, and someone was talking about hell, someone was talking about prayer, someone was talking about preaching, and they asked me, they said, Pastor, now what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm going to do it on apologetics. And let me tell you something, for the next 15 minutes, every single one of these speakers gave me a good apologetic on why apologetics was not a good subject to teach on. And I just sat there smiling. Everybody is an apologist. Again, the question is whether or not you are a good one. God wants us to be good apologists. Can you say amen to that? Now the question we have to ask ourselves though, why apologetics? Why the defense of the Christian faith? I wrote down five things. In fact, I'm being challenged by one of my professors to actually write a book on apologetics. So I came up with this first chapter. You guys are experiencing part of chapter one. Why apologetics? Number one. Ellen White's view of a more multifaceted ministry, a ministry that is constantly expanding and unfolding and trying to reach needs all over the world. Number two, the limit of current apologetics. Now, if you've ever heard apologists, you'll find out that they reach a certain limit with their understanding of the truth of God's word. God wants us to be able to go the very next step, amen? The missing puzzle pieces. Number three, the traditional divide of science and religion. In fact, you're going to learn something amazing about that. Number four, apologetics as discipleship. Now, what in the world is that all about? Number five, confronting anti-intellectual ideas in the church. More specifically, heresy that is arising in the church more and more. Now, let's understand a little bit about heresy so we can kind of have a more focused edge on this. All heresy... All apostasy has one thing ultimately in common. This is the one common denominator. Even in the beginning, it may, may not look like the common denominator, but in the end, it is the ultimate common denominator, and that is this a diminishing of the nature, mission, and words of Jesus Christ. All heresy will eventually end up in its goal with that perspective a diminishing of the nature, the mission, and the words of Jesus Christ. And friends, we are surrounded by apostasy today. So apologetics is something super important for God's people to understand. We're gonna be taking a good look, and this is gonna be our launch pad for this seminar, at Paul, one of the greatest Christian apologists. So if you have have your Bible, turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, we're gonna be learning a wonderful story. Acts chapter 17. By the way, does anybody know who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Does anybody know who Luke was writing to? Theophilus, right? Does anybody know who Theophilus was? Scholars believe that Theophilus was somebody who was actually living in Jerusalem, who was sort of like the spokesperson for Paul's ministry. So as Paul went about, remember, his ministry was being questioned. As he was reaching out to Gentiles going all over the world, The church needed someone to actually do PR. And so Theophilus was considered the man by many scholars to be someone who was talking about Paul's ministry and vindicating Paul's ministry as he continued to reach the entire world. So we're going to Acts chapter 17. I want you to start with verse 16. Let's start with verse 16. Notice what the Bible says right here. Now while Paul waited for them that's the brethren, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to what? Very good, idols. Then he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. Now notice this next phrase, and in the what? Marketplace. In the marketplace. Paul would have been a great spokesperson for ASI, Amen. In the marketplace, daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? This is where it gets interesting. Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is that which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what things mean. For all the Athenians and their foreigners who were there, spent all their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear something new. Now, understanding a little bit of this context is quite amazing. There was actually a well-known philosopher, 400 years plus, that was actually tried and judged there at the Areopagus. And that was Socrates. And by the way, do you know why Socrates was judged and forced to drink the hemlock poison? His political rivals accused him of atheism. Now, he wasn't someone who was an atheist. In fact, he was actually attacking the democracy. The corrupt democracy was there. Him, like many other philosophers, philosophers wanted a, a strong monarch that could lead Athens. Athens had lost some of its glory. And so there were a lot of philosophers that were saying all sorts of things. His political rivals did not appreciate that. And so they tried him. And what they did is they judged him guilty. In fact, after they judged him guilty, there was two courts in the the city of Athens. First, they tried him if they were guilty or innocent. Then the second court tried them on what their punishment would be. After they tried Socrates and they said, you're guilty, the second court said to him, what would you like your punishment to be? He responded, I would like you to buy me some food. He actually was so nonchalant about the whole thing. And when they took the hemlock poison and they said to him, it is time for you to drink it, he simply took it and drank it. And then he died. Now this is very interesting. Here you have a man that was accused of bringing atheism into Athens. 400 years later, plus, you have another man who is on trial, you could say, brought before this great council and accused of bringing a different God. Quite interesting when you think about the Areopagus. It was a place where they actually tried people generally for homicide, murder. And so here Paul is. He's brought before these great counselors. And Athens in this time had, had lost some of its great glory and its splendor. Yet there were still people who loved to hear some of the musings of these philosophers. So as they heard Paul, they put him before this, this sort of great surrounding, and they said, what is this new thing that you are teaching to us? Now, I want you to pay attention to something. Paul was not actually looking for an audience here. What he was actually doing, he was busy witnessing in the marketplace, in the church, and through providence, he was brought before all these, um, these intellects and these scholars and researchers of Athens. And it is before this time that he begins to give a powerful defense of the Christian faith. Now let's find out what is said here. Again, this is going to be sort of our launching pad for apologetics. Let's go to verse twenty-two. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, "Men of what? Men of what? By the way, when you read the book of Acts, Paul knows how to address every crowd. One crowd, he says, the men of Israel, the men of Ephesus, the men of Galilee, the men of Athens." The men of, and you name it. So Paul understood each and every single crowd he was dealing with. He understood their pagan background. He understood the superstitions that they had. And so he addressed them, men of Athens. Let's continue. I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worships, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the word, world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hand as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of the men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their preappointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said. We are also his offspring. Now this is interesting. Paul begins to actually quote from these philosophers. Now if you notice, there was two groups of philosophers there. There were the Epicureans and there were the Stoics. They were completely on the other end of the spectrum. The Epicureans were people who lived for the here and now. They believed pleasure, was the ultimate goal. They didn't care much for an afterlife. The Stoics were all on the other end of the spectrum. They were people that believed in morality, virtue. That was the purpose of life. And they believed in an afterlife. And so you have these two groups that are on either end of the spectrum and Paul begins to address them. He pays attention to the poetry and the words that are used throughout the city on placards, inscriptions. And he begins to talk to them in their very own language. Let's continue on. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, times of ignorance God overlooked, and now commands men everywhere to repent, because he is appointed on a day which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this by raising him from the what? Paul drops the ultimate theological bombshell on them that there is a resurrection and then see the response. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed among them. However, some men joined them and believed among them, Deonosis, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. How many people have read this story before? It's a very interesting story, isn't it? You can read Ellen White's understanding of this, her commentary on this story, and she points out that Paul learned many lessons. When he was brought before this great multitude, she says he matched logic with logic, philosophy with philosophy. At the very end, there was a few that came out of it, out of this harvest. But he also switched tactics after this point. This was also a transition time for Paul. Now I want us to pay attention to this. Because in our world today, we have the grand marketplace, globalization. We have communication happening in so many ways. Every avenue is being explored. Where in the past, it took months to get a message from one continent to another. We can do that in mere minutes now. In fact, I actually got a a message not too long ago about a group of people in Africa. They heard my sermon somewhere, and they said, we're now keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. Quite remarkable, right? Right? I mean, God has powerful ways of getting the message out. Amen? In fact, I also heard something really funny. It happened about two weeks ago. No, about three weeks ago. I get this message from somebody, and she said this. You're not going to believe this. You just preached a sermon at Walmart. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, you just preached a sermon at Walmart. She said, my son, who happens to work at Walmart, he, what he did is when he went outside for his break, he left his walkie-talkie on. And the walkie-talkie, connects with the system, right? Sometimes you hear them, you're like, paging associate John Zirkel to aisle five, right? You hear those kinds of things. They do it on this speaker, on this walkie-talkie. He went outside, he left his walkie-talkie on during his break, okay? Locked it on, he went to his car, he turned on a sermon I preached, and for 40 minutes, Walmart heard a sermon I preached. In fact, what is so interesting, the managers couldn't, took it to, you know, they couldn't turn it off Uh, They couldn't turn it off because the system was essentially locked into place because of his walkie-talkie. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine that? Here you are shopping for Thai detergent, (laughs) right? The voice says, you need the blood of Jesus to clean you, amen? (laughs) You're out there shopping in the clearance rack, maybe looking for a shirt. You hear this voice, you need the robes of Christ's righteousness, right? I mean, think about it, get to heaven one day, we're going to learn how just these simple things God used one people, right? How do you learn about Jesus? I learned about Jesus at Walmart, right? <laughs> I mean, just think about it. In our world today, information is spreading rapidly and in powerful ways. And so God wants us to be in the forefront of that. Can you say amen to that? And so what we're going to be discovering today is how God wants us to use apologetics in a way that is responsible and powerful. Take a good look at these quotes by Ellen White. She says right here, Let every worker in the master's vineyard study, plan, now notice this, devise methods to reach the people where they are not. Is that what it says? Where they are. We must do something out of the common course of things. We must arrest the what? Even putting a sermon on at Walmart, right? We must fully believe in church organization, but this is not to prescribe the exact way in which we should work, for not all minds are to be reached by the same methods. Some of the methods used in this work will, notice this, will be different from the methods used in the work in the past, but let us let no one, because of this, block the way by criticism. Different methods of labor are really essential in sowing the seeds of truth and gathering in the harvest. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were to sum up with these quotes, we're saying, what are they saying? Be flexible, good, anybody else? Be creative, very good, what else? Know your audience, I like that, very good. Anybody else? Huh? Know your God, okay. Somebody said something over here? Understand the as you're in, yes. That's exactly right, very good. You guys all said the right answer, right? And this is very important because apologetics, God wants us to be multifaceted in reaching different people, different minds. You know, one day, I was taking a class. I had to take this class. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. It was called Feminism and Sexuality in Regards to the Middle East. I had to take that class. I didn't want to take that class for many reasons. And I didn't, I didn't want to be part of that class but because of the major that I was in, it was required and it fit the schedule, so I had to take that class. And let me tell you something. The teacher in that class, he is somebody who is very much an atheist. In fact, his Twitter name is The Arabian Atheist, okay? He is somebody who grew up in Lebanon but does not care for religious matters. He has been on the Bill Myers show. Have you ever heard of Bill Myers? Right, It takes a certain kind of mind to be on that mind right, in that show, right? He is somebody that is very anti-Christianity. And let me tell you, being in this class, it was one of the most difficult things. And I thought to myself, I'm going to keep my mouth shut the entire time. I'm just going to answer when I'm asked a question. I'm just going to speak when I'm asked to to speak. One day I came across this problem. And I want you to pay attention to this. Wisdom is too lofty for a what? Fool. Notice these keywords. He opens not his mouth in the what? Do you know what the gate was, that word, the gate, in the land of Israel? See, the gates were the entrance to Jerusalem. The gates is where the elders made decisions, where discussion took place. So in other words, in the marketplace of ideas, if you keep your mouth shut when it's time to speak, you're a fool. And when I heard that, I thought to myself, oh, man. Lord, you got to help me to know what to say, when to say it, because when I speak, I get into a lot of trouble. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to regulate our mouth, right? But there is a time to speak, and God wants us to speak when it's time to speak. In the marketplace of ideas, at the gate, when it's time for discussion, God wants you to open your mouth. Can you say amen to that? Take a good look at the number one verse that is used to describe apologetics. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your what? hearts and always be ready to give a defense the word is apologia to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear the bible teaches that we always need to be ready for anything take a good look at what Ellen White says right here the times demand an intelligent educated ministry she's not just talking about degrees here okay not novices False doctrines are being multiplied. The world is becoming educated to a high standard of literary attainment, and sin, unbelief, and infidelity are becoming more bold and defined as intellectual knowledge and acuteness are acquired. The state of things calls for the use of every power of the intellect, for it is keen minds under the control of Satan that the minister will have to meet. Let me ask you a question. How many people here are ministers? You should all raise your hand. I didn't say you're all pastors, did I? Every believer is called to be a minister for Christ. Can you say amen to that, right? We will have to meet the world. And more and more, as knowledge is starting to open up, as unbelief is growing, as sin is starting to grow, more and more, God calls his people to rise to the standard. Take a look at what Ellen White says right here in the book of Evangelism. Every position of truth taken by our people will bear the criticism of the greatest minds. The highest of the world's great men will be brought in contact with truth. And therefore, every position we take should be critically examined and tested by the scriptures. Now we seem to be unnoticed. But this will not always be. Movements are at work to bring us to the front. And if our theories of truth can be picked apart to pieces by historians or the world's greatest men, it will be done. Now, you might think, oh, is is it really going to happen in our lifetime? I actually had a friend who was a a senior pastor, and he actually had to go up to Sacramento to help out a church member who lost his job because of Sabbath keeping. And so they were to meet with the lawyers and the lawyers of the company as well. And so they brought this pastor in, my friend. He said when he got there, he said it was the most unusual thing. He sat down at a table. And he says, the lawyers of the company, they wanted to talk to him, and they said, we have some questions for you. How do you define the Seventh-day Adventist? And so my friend, the pastor, began to say, well, this is what a Seventh-day Adventist is, blah, blah, blah. How do you describe someone who is a Sabbath keeper? Oh, this is what it is, blah, blah, blah. Then they pulled something out. They pulled out, this is the funniest thing, the church manual. And they said, the lawyer said, we have been studying this church manual. And as we look at this individual, he doesn't fit the criteria of someone who is a Sabbath keeper. He's worked with us for a few times on the Sabbath. I want you to understand something. Now, you may think, okay, though, yeah, the biggest threat you get is from your neighbor when they come by and they said, hey, you know, where are you going to church? You're going to church on Sabbath. You're like, oh, is that really the Sabbath? You know, let me tell you something. Just the way that presidents right now, are, or presidential candidates are being vetted, how the media is constantly attacking, how scholars and researchers and pundits are criticizing it. One day Ellen White says, we will be brought to the forefront and our ideas will be tested, they will be criticized, they will be scrutinized, and we need to know for ourselves what the Bible is truly teaching on this subject. Amen? Very important. This one's going to blow your mind away. The time will come when we should be called to stand before kings and rulers, magistrates and powers in vindication of the truth. Then it will be a surprise, notice this, to those witnesses to learn that their positions, their words, the very expressions made in a careless manner or thoughtless way when attacking error or advancing truth, expressions that they had not thought would be remembered will be reproduced and they will be confronted with them and their enemies will have the advantage putting their own construction on these words that were spoken unadvisedly. Now I want you to think about this. This was probably written during a time where you had written records. Now everything is on the internet and it is very easy to recall sermons. It's easy to recall uh, things that you have put on there, articles, even things that you wrote in college that can be reproduced. Now let's just think about it. We have some very good examples right now with the presidential campaign going on, right? They are digging into the lives of every one of these people. I want you to understand something. It is very important from this point on that everything we say and communicate is in harmony with the Spirit of Christ. Amen? It's done in a responsible manner because we are told that one day there will be certain individuals, and I hope it's not me, right? that will be brought to the stand, and information that you had said in a careless way will be reproduced and used against you. God wants us to be responsible with the truth. Amen? And we need to learn how to communicate this. So why is apologetics important? How do we actually do apologetics? Number one, you need to familiarize yourself with the most up-to-date material and learn to communicate in a culturally relevant manner. Number two, be willing to engage in a variety of contexts, the classroom, the public forums, the churches, personal settings, wherever you may find yourself in the Areopagus, you name it. Presenting information, notice this, that removes intellectual barriers to beliefs. I want to say something that's very important. We are not called to understand every single answer, but we are called to give sufficient answers. We may not understand all there is when it comes to science, but we need to learn to at least give reasonable answers. Amen? In fact, what is very interesting, I just finished this uh, book on apologetics, and uh, the author says something interesting. He says, look, when you have someone who is learning apologetics, learning how to give a defense of Christian faith, you have so many subjects you need to deal with. You have science, you have the arts, You have, you know, literature, you have theology, you have religion. How in the world is somebody going to become so cultured, so experienced to be able to answer in every single one of these categories? He responds by saying, it's not necessary. He says, take for example how you build a house. The way you build a house, he says, you need an expert in foundations. You need an expert in framing. You need an expert in drywalling, an expert in painting, an expert in electrical, an expert in plumbing. But he says this, but it only takes one individual, one individual to not to improve, not to approve the house. You know what individual that is? The inspector. And the inspector, guess what? Doesn't know all there is to know about foundations. He doesn't know all there is about framing or plumbing or electrical. But what he can notice is flaws. And once he identifies flaws, He can completely scrub the entire project until the error is fixed. So he eventually makes the argument, the author, that Christian apologists are called to be inspectors when it comes to these other theories. Can you say amen to that? And the ultimate goal, friends, is to lead individuals to a wonderful experience with Jesus. Now, let's jump into our apologetics. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the number one question asked by people to Christian apologists? Number one question in the entire world that is asked to more Christian apologists than any other question there is. How do we know God is true? Anybody else? Did God really resurrect the dead? Okay, very good. Anybody else? Say it again? How can you believe what you believe? Okay. God's not fair. Anybody else? Yes. Okay, very good. Anybody else? Is there a God? Number one question is this. If God is so good, why is the world so bad? That's the number one question. Now, I want you to think about this. This is so interesting. Number one question that is asked. If God is so good, why is the world so bad? I'm reading this book called God is Not One. It's from one of my classes. And uh, the man is a Christian, but he says this. He says this, oftentimes assumed that all religions are the same, in that there may be slight differences, but they have the same goal. He says that every religion has distinctives that are so different they cannot be categorized as being very similar and leading to the same goal. He said, for example, take the Hindus. Their end goal is Nirvana, right? Take, you know, Muslims. Their end goal is a picture of heaven, right? Eternal bliss. Take Christians, right? He says in every religion the end goal is different even their concepts of god is different but he said the one thing that can be said about all religions is this that in the beginning they asked this one question why is the world messed up that's the number one question asked by all religious groups in other words this is why you need this religion because something is wrong so in other words One thing that all religions have in common is that they ask the initial question, why is the world messed up? What's wrong with this world? Now just think about that. Such an interesting question, isn't it? Peter Kraft, a Christian apologist, he says these words, the problem of evil is the most serious problem in the world. More people have abandoned their faith because of the problem of evil than any other reason. It is is certainly the greatest test of faith, the greatest temptation to unbelief. And it's not just an intellectual objection. We feel it. We live in it. The problem can be stated very simply. If God is so good, why is his world so bad? Why do bad things happen to good people? Anybody know who that individual is right there? Charles Darwin. Do you know what book he wrote? That one, yeah, right? The Origin of Species, right? Now, what's very interesting about this book, right? Do you know when he wrote it or when he actually authored this book? Yeah, that's very interesting, 1800s, right around the time the Seventh-day Adventist movement was growing, right, or was beginning to grow. Now, what's very interesting, if you actually study out the history of Charles Darwin, you will see, very interesting from his own writings, that it was not scientific conclusions that led him down the path of naturalism, rather it was conclusions he had about theodicy. Take a good look at this. This is actually written in a letter. With respect to the theological view of the question, this is always painful to me. I am bewildered. I have no intention to write atheistically. But I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do. And I, as I wish to do. Evidence of design and beneficence of all sides of us. There seems to be too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designingly created, notice this, the wasps with the express intention of their larva feeding within the bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. When you take a good look at what Charles Darwin was wrestling with, what was he wrestling with? The world is messed up. How could a good God create a messed up world? That's the question we all wrestle with, right? Now I want you to understand something, okay? When you open up your Bible, what is the very first thing you encounter when you open up the Scriptures? Okay, creation. Creation. Now, what do you encounter when you open up creation? You encounter a perfect world. What else do you encounter in that perfect world? Okay, what else? You encounter a perfect world with perfect people who worship a perfect God, right? Perfect environment. You close your Bible, you look around in the world around us, what do you see? You see completely the opposite, don't you? Let's open it up one more time. Perfect God, perfect people. Perfect world. Close the Bible. You look around. It doesn't match up. Now I want you to understand something. God was very intentional to put Genesis chapter 1 in the very beginning of the Bible. You want to know why? Because God wants you to ask the same question. What's wrong? Now I want you to think about this. Imagine if you just left your house, wherever you're at. Say if you're um, Loma Linda, like Jonathan Zirkel, Right? You left your house, you cleaned your house, everything was perfect, you vacuumed, all the clothes were folded, the dog is fed, taken care of by the neighbors, whoever. And as you're leaving the house, you say, okay, looks good, I'm going to come home to a clean house. You go home, you go, you go to ASI, you love Arizona, you love the project seminar, right? You go back home, say Monday, you get there, your door's busted open. You look inside the house, the drawers are open, there's clothes everywhere, you notice scratch marks on your car, there's dishes actually uh, you know, dirty and in the sink. Now, would you think to yourself at that very moment, just like the way I left it? No, what would you think? You would think, what happened? Is that obvious? You would, you would logically ask the question, what happened? You would not just go about as things are, oh yeah, oh, this is really good, things are just the way I left it. In other words, the reason why God introduces us in Genesis chapter one with the perfect God and perfect world who commune with the perfect people and then we close the Bible and we see a messed up world because God wants you to ask the exact same question, what happened? He actually wants you to ask the question, if God is so good, why is the world so bad? Now that's something super important. We don't actually have to stray away from that question. God actually wants us to Confront that question. That's why Genesis chapter 1 is in the very beginning of the Bible. God wants you to ask the question, if God is so good, why is this world so messed up? By the way, did you know somebody else asked that same question? Do you know Jesus gave a parable right here? Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed what? What kind of people sow good seeds in their fields? Very good. Very good. Good farmers. I mean, if they put bad seeds, right, they'd be bad farmers, right? Pretty obvious, right? Let's keep going. Good seed in his field. But while men slept, notice these keywords, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the grain had sprouted and produced the crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? By the way, what kind of people sow good seeds in the field? Good farmer. Notice this. How then does it have what? Tears. Now let's let's rephrase that. Aren't you supposed to be a good farmer? Why is the field messed up? N- let's look again. If you're so good, why is the world so messed up? You are actually looking at the theodicy question right here, the problem of evil question here. Jesus is actually affirming The person who asked the question, if God is so good, why is the world so messed up? But notice the response of Jesus right here. He said to them, an enemy has done this. The problem of evil needs to be transitioned into a great controversy narrative. Without the vital components of the war in heaven, merely describing the fall of mankind does not suffice. Key points need to Eventually be introduced to expand the perspective of our broken existence. The very first direction is that of God's own heart. By the way, do you know that word problem of evil? It only appears once in the spirit of prophecy. Do you know that? Once in the entire spirit of prophecy. Thousands of writing. Thousands of pages of material. Only once does that phrase, the problem of evil, appear. Do you know where? In the introduction to the great Controversy. She actually wrote the introduction to the great controversy. And do you know what she says in the introduction? She says this. The object of this book is to provide satisfactory answers to the problem of evil. Now, this is where it gets even more powerful. When you open up that book, what is the very first thing you're introduced to? What's in chapter 1? Y'all need to read that book again. <laughs> What's the very first thing you're introduced in chapter one of the Great Controversy? Remember, now, let, before, wait, hold on a second, hold on. Why was that book written? To give what? Sat- Her words are satisfactory answers to the problem of evil. So you're thinking, okay, this book is actually meant to deal with the problem of evil. In other words, this book is to give us satisfactory answers to the problem of evil to answer the question, Lord, if you sowed good seed, then why is the world bad? This is the book God has given to us. Now the question is, what is the very first thing you're introduced to when you open up this book? I will need to read that book again. <laughs> Jesus weeping. Now, just think about that. If this entire book is written to answer the problem of evil, the very first thing we're introduced to is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Wait a minute. We're now learning how to understand and approach the great controversy with people. In other words, the very first thing that we should get before the people in answering the problem of evil is that God's own heart is broken. Are you tracking with me so far? I mean, think about it. I mean, we could go out, and by the way, Christian apologists, generally what they'll say is, the reason why the world is so messed up is because people have choice. Now, let me tell you something. If you just lost your loved one, is that really a satisfactory answer? Do you know the entirety of the book of Job is confusion? You know that, right? Do you know why it's confusing? Because the entirety of the book of Job, or the most of the book of Job, is Job's friends attempting to answer the problem of evil. That's why most people, when they open up the book of Job, say, I have no clue what that means. I can understand the beginning and I can understand the end, but I have no clue what the rest of the book of Job means. Why? Because it's man's attempt to answer the problem of evil. And the more you read it, you're just like, I I don't know where this is going. Job's friends are completely missing the mark here. But when you open up the great controversy, it's very interesting. The first thing we're introduced, the first thing we need to understand about answering the problem of evil is that God's own heart is broken. Now, this is powerful stuff, friends. I want you to understand something. So many times I've attempted to answer the problem of evil through a different approach, thinking that my words may be comfort or give someone hope. Yeah, we're in this situation because mankind made some bad choices. That doesn't comfort anybody. This is where apologetics is limited, right here. This, this is where Adventism steps over, though. That there is a great controversy, meta narrative, and that God's heart is broken. Because of the problem of sin. Your heart is broken because of this tragedy. Guess what? God's heart is broken too. The very first direction is that of God's own heart. God is broken over the tragedies we experience. This powerful point immediately brings the heart of mankind into connection with the what? The heart of God. This is such a powerful thing when we begin to understand the problem of evil. Now, we have to ask ourselves those questions like, wait a minute. In dealing with this subject, the problem of evil, let's expand this a little bit more. I need to know how much time I have left. Does anybody know? I was one day sitting with a graduate student. He was an atheist. He was finishing up. He was going into philosophy. And uh, he told me right off the back, he said, by the way, I want you to know something. Now, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in religion. I don't believe in any of that stuff. And I go, why? You know what he said to me? He said these words. He says, because there is so much evil and suffering in this world. So you know what I said to him? I said something interesting. I said, well, how would you solve the problem? He looked right, me, looked right at me in the eyes, and he said, gee, no, actually, I don't know. Now, just think about that. I mean, here he is. He's accusing God of, you know, bringing on this suffering. He's an immoral being. But then when you actually ask the question, how would you, how would you solve this problem? There's something that every person understands, and that is this. Evil is not so much external as it is internal. The line of good evil runs through every single person. You can get rid of all the evil in the world, but guess what? It'll just sprout up again because it's in the heart of every person, right? And so what the great controversy, the plan of redemption is God's way of getting rid of it. So how do we also deal with some of these questions? We need to learn this principle of apologetics, and that is this, learning to question the questioner. In fact, when you study out the life of Christ, do you know he actually asked 100 questions in the Gospels? 100 questions in the Gospels. Jesus understood the prejudices that were there, and he understood how to overcome the prejudice. By the way, how many people here go to a Sabbath school? Raise your hand. I fully believe this, that the way Sabbath schools have been done currently have really messed us up in our communication. You want to know why? Because the Sabbath school teacher says, what's the answer? And you know what we say? This is the answer. Say, what's the wrong with that? What day is the Sabbath? Saturday is the Sabbath. What happens to people when they die? They sleep, right? What does verse 52 say? This is what verse 52 says. Good. And you know what's happened? And in our communication with the world, We've become so superficial in our communication, we're just quick to give answers. When you actually study out the life of Christ, the way he gave answers was through questions. Do you know it was through questions he led searchers back to where they could find the truth? You know, I realized this when I was studying out the, the, the way that Jesus communicated, Jesus would say, Well, what saith the law? What, what, what do you read when you open up the scriptures? How read us now? Answer this question. And this is super important because what happens is when a person feels directed by their own choice to be able to go back and examine this, what they begin to do is they begin to own that which they discover. So friends, I really want to challenge you on this topic. When you're communicating with people, learn to ask questions. Learn just not just to give the answers, but learn to ask questions. Why did Jesus ask questions? Well, he revealed the divinity of the Savior by asking heart-searching questions. He exposed assumptions held by the questioner. He showed the questioner the fallacies of their own belief. He pointed out prejudices and avoided possible accusations. He led the questioner to obvious conclusions on their own, thus being responsible for answers, and they yearned for more. You know what I'm doing now when people ask me questions, say, for example, on the Sabbath? I say, well, okay, let's open up the Bible. You tell me what that says. You tell me, what do you think that means right there? And it's been so amazing. You know what happens during Bible study? People aren't sleeping. They're like awake. (laughs) And it's amazing because the best part of Bible study is when you're ashamed. Well, what do you think this means? They'll be like, this means that the dead are sleeping. (laughs) And it's amazing because it's just like you you get this. They, They start hungering for these things. I'm telling you, friends, we need to learn to ask questions, not just give the answers. By the way, you know what we're going to be doing for eternity? Yeah, obvious. <laughs> we're, going to be asking, we're going to be asking God questions. We're going to be searching out more and more of the mysteries of God. And do you know what's required in searching? Questions. Forever, the infinite God will be revealing himself to finite beings and it's a powerful thing. All right, let's look at another form of apologetics. This came out by Frank Turok. It's called The Atheist Crimes. And what he essentially says is this. He said, atheists commit crimes in that they actually borrow from arguments for God's existence and they use the material to attack God. In his book, Stealing from God, he says that atheists commit crimes. C stands for causality, R stands for reason, I stands for intentionality, M stands for morality, E stands for evil, S stands for science. And in his book, he makes the argument That atheists will actually extract information, truth surrounding the will and way of God, and they will use that. For example, you might have heard that common argument called the moral argument, where a person will accuse God of being immoral. Now, in order to accuse God of being immoral, of doing something, they must first have an objective moral anchor, right? But without an objective moral anchor, how can they make a judgment about morality? In fact, yesterday... My brother-in-law and my sister just live about 20 minutes from here. He's a lawyer, and she runs several businesses. And uh, he works for this very nice firm. And anyways, the, you know, I come from a Hindu and Sikh background. And so I was really praying. I said, Lord, just open up the door. And so I was there driving, and it was so amazing. My brother in is like, so what are you doing at this convention? Right? I said, well, this is what I'm doing. Then I kept my mouth shut. And then he says, he's like, so how did you become a Christian? And I was like, well, this is how I became a Christian. And then he says, oh, how is it different from other religious beliefs? And I said, well, this is how. And then he says something interesting. He says, that's good. He says, you need a moral anchor. He says, I was taught in law school that you really can't argue for morality. Then we talked about the O.J. Simpson case. I was actually listening to an interview by the, one of the attorneys, Shapiro. What's Shapario? What was his first name? Robert? And, um, right? Robert was actually asked a question in an interview. Do you think O.J. Simpson was guilty? Do you think justice was served? And the Shapiro responds by saying this. He said, well, I believe legal justice was served, but if you're asking about moral justice, that's another question. And so I was talking to my brother-in-law about that, and he said, yeah, you know, it's very interesting. Moral justice is so important. You need an anchor. You need something objective. And here he is. He's essentially giving me arguments for Christianity with this, okay? And I'm just listening, well, that's absolutely right. You're absolutely right about that. And the question is, well, where do you find it? You know why this argument is super important? Because it helps us to understand that when we're dealing with accusations or we're dealing with skeptics that are attacking the belief in God or the belief in Scripture, we need to understand that they're actually borrowing from material that is of God. For example, he makes this argument when he talks about our reason, and he talks about the laws of logic. He says, he says this, God, you know, he'll deal with skeptics, and skeptics will say, oh, there's no such thing as God. And then he asks the question, he says, let me ask you a question. What are the three laws of logic? They'll say, well, if you break down all the laws of logic, they fall into three categories, the law of non-contradiction, you have the law of excluded middle, and then you have the law of identity. He says, this is what happens when you break down all the laws of logic. Then he asks the second question, he says, did the laws of logic exist before the creation of mankind from purely a naturalistic uh, perspective? Skeptic says, well, did the laws of logic exist prior to the creation of mankind, before mankind was ever evolved or whatever you believe in? They said, yes. The laws of logic are absolute. Then he asked the next question. Where did they come from? Where did the laws of logic come from? Because even if you were to remove physical matter, are the laws of logic still there? They're still there. Where do these laws of logic come from? And he essentially makes the argument that atheists who try to reason away from God, reason away from God, actually have to bar reason of God to do it. It's very powerful when you take it. I highly recommend that book to anybody. Think about the law, right? For example, you know, I was uh, sitting around, actually I'm gonna pass the subject up right now. Let's go to the Sabbath. Now let's talk about the Sabbath. Everybody take your Bible, go to Acts chapter 14. I want you to see something interesting. Acts chapter 14. Paul had a very unusual way of dealing with people who were not of his uh, particular faith. Acts chapter 14, he's dealing with heathen. Does anybody know the difference between a heathen and a Gentile? What's a Gentile? A gentile is a non-Jew. What's a heathen? It'd be a non-Christian or consider a non-Jew as well. Right. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 14. Paul comes across people who are heathen, right? Acts chapter 14. Are you all there? Good, I need to be there. Okay, Acts chapter 14. Okay, let's start with verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said to him with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. He leaped up and walked. Now notice this. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they call Zeus. Zeus probably, Barnabas probably was jolly looking. That's Zeus right there. Then watch what they say about Paul. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, he's very eloquent. Then the priest of Zeus, who was, in the temp- who was whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to their gates, intending to sacrifice for the multitudes. Verse 14 is key. But the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this. They tore their clothes, ran in among the multitude, crying out, and said, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, notice this, to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Where are they quoting from? Where do you find that phrase? "Made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Where is that phrase found? It's found in the fourth commandment. By the way, when you read the rest of the book of Acts, do you know whenever Paul was dealing with Gentiles, oftentimes he would quote from the fourth commandment? Do you know when you actually study out the Old Testament, many times people would quote from the fourth commandment when they were appealing to God's great power. The Sabbath was used to define and point people to God more than a personal being, but to the, as the creator God. Now, why is this very important? Look what Ellen White says right here. The most effective way to teach the heathen. Notice this. Who know not God is through his what? Wait, you just have right here the prescription on how to reach people who are not Christian. Who are part of a, a pagan background. Whether they're Hindus and Muslims. She says this. Is through his what? Works. When you appeal to God as the great creator, just like Paul did right here, he said the God who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, he says it has an appeal, she uh, she says it has an appeal to people who are in that particular background. In this way, far more readily than by any other method, they can be made to realize the difference between their idols, the works of their own hands, and the true God, the maker of heaven and earth. In itself, the beauty of nature leads the soul away from sin and worldly attractions and towards purity, peace, and God. There's one thing the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, and that is this. The world that does not know God is still not excusable because what can be known about God is seen through his what? Created works. God uses nature oftentimes to communicate with people. By the way, when you read uh, Jonah chapter 1, God speaks to Jonah. Does Jonah speak back to him? No. No. Do you know what God does? He sends a whale. Then Jonah talks to the Lord. Jonah chapter 4? Jonah's upset. Does he talk to God? So you know what God sends next? A plant and a worm. In other words, where the first method of revelation failed, God resorted to the second method of revelation, which is what? Nature. And so... Those that don't yet accept the scriptures as the word of God, God also wants us to appeal to the second book of Revelation, which is nature. And it's through the beauty of nature that God can communicate. In fact, in India, I have some friends, and uh, they left, they were part of this big old school, and there's thousands of Hindus and Muslims at this school. They left this school one day, and as they left, something strange took place. A troop of monkeys... They made their way to the top of their house, and they stayed there the entire, um, I think it was 10 days on top of this house, and they were described by many of the people in the school as these big, like, huge-looking monkeys, right? And they were there the whole time. When they came back, my friends, they saw this troop of monkeys, they looked at them, those are big monkeys. They went in the house, the monkeys took off, never came again on that roof. They found out later by people in that village that the day they left, people were planning to go into their house to do stuff to them, to do stuff inside their house, to take stuff. And when they went there, they found this troop of monkeys with these huge, you know, monkey-looking monkeys. (laughs) And they were there. They were so afraid, they fled. But each day, they would come back to check, and these monkeys just stood there And for that entire time, they were there. At the very end, word came back to them that the God of those monkeys protects that house. So God knows how to use nature to reach out to people, amen? So Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we also need to use nature. And one of the best ways we can uh, communicate about nature is God, not that God is in nature, but that nature is his handiwork, is through the beautiful truth of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a powerful way that God wants us to communicate that. And guess what? But, I have a friend right there, Sean Wycliffe. Sean, could you come here for a second? I'm gonna bar you. Now, everybody know what ethnicity Sean is? He's from Bangladesh. Just wanted to fool you guys because people always think, yeah, we all look like, right? This is Sean right here. Sean runs a college ministry Sean, what college ministry do you run? Uh, my wife and I have a ministry called Christ Method Alone in Berkeley, California. Now, Berkeley, California is definitely not like Andrews University, right? <laughs> and they have a lot of international students at Berkeley. And this is amazing. They're getting a lot of people to start keeping the Sabbath. Could you tell us real quickly how that's happening? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we,
1: we started this academic ministry, we identified that the needs at the college are mainly social with the students and also academic. So we have a seminar that teaches students how to get AIDS, the How to Get AIDS Seminar. And so we promote it on Facebook mostly. A lot of college students come, mostly freshmen, junior transfers, international students, very stressed out. And so we go over things like how to take classes, how to study, how to take tests, how to do papers, but then we also go over things uh, in terms of how to get good grades, which is... Rest every night, go to bed early, get off with caffeine, don't drink alcohol, take one day off every week. Uh, we recommend Saturday over Sunday because <laughs> <laughs> just on a practical, non-biblical level, why would you want to take Sunday off? You have school the next day. So you can never really take it off mentally because you're thinking about the test you have Monday morning eight. It just doesn't make any sense practically. But Saturday, for instance, at the end of the week, your brain's already fried. So you take it off. And a lot of these kids, it's a 12 week program that we've been doing recently. Um, so the second week we get into the Sabbath concept as just a practical thing for optimizing your academic. And some kids will stay through the whole thing and some kids will drop out you know, after the third, or fourth week to get busy. But a lot of these folks, they're, they're still keeping the Sabbath, even though they don't even know it's the Sabbath. They just know that they should take Saturday off and go on hikes and go outside into in nature and re-get re- a new perspective.
0: This is Berkeley, right? Yeah, we understand yeah. this is Berkeley, right? <laughs> you
1: know, some Buddhists and things, there, there are some Sabbath keepers that are atheists as well. <laughs> wow. So praise God for that. It, it's been amazing, and yeah, hopefully that's what you're... Really
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much, Sean. <laughs> now, notice this is very interesting. In other words, uh, and you might have heard of a chronobiology where they're actually showing that the seventh-day Sabbath rest, people need to rest every single Sabbath, not because of culture or even because merely of just religious obligation but because of biology so in other words nature itself can be used to give an argument for why you should keep the sabbath and in keeping the sabbath they'll be led to the truth by the way ellen white says if the sabbath was kept as it was from the very beginning she said there'll never be a single idolater or atheist ever those are her words word for word so those atheists are keeping the sabbath will not be atheists very long <laughs> right. so coming down to the, uh, towards the end of this my friend um, he had gone to this debate, and, uh, and it's very interesting. In this debate, he was to hear a Christian apologist who was going to debate, it a, a naturalist professor. And they would discuss whether or not God exists. When he got there, some of the students that put the whole thing on, they did something wrong. They put the entire ba- a debate as science versus religion. Now, what's wrong with that label? It makes religion sound as if it's unscientific, Right? Right? But that's not the case. And so they had to talk to the students about that. Hey, next time you guys do that, don't title it science versus religion, right? Because it's not science versus religion. In fact, and what's so amazing about this, friends, I really appreciate the Seventh-day Adventist church because we have nothing wrong with the, with, uh, in dealing with the data that's found. The data that's actually discovered is completely combati- uh, com- compatible with the flood story. Now imagine this. In fact, if there was no flood story, we'd have a difficult time explaining why the fossil record is the way it is. But because there's a flood story, it makes sense. And that's what's so amazing is that we have nothing to fear from the science that's found or the data that's found. It's the interpretation that can be troublesome, right? Now, the question was asked to many students, what's your big problem with Christianity? They responded because there's a divide between science and religion. Religion is actually not scientific. Now, friends, we can get into a discussion right now about how we can come up with better arguments for creation science, which I believe is important, but I believe something else. I believe God is not just calling us down the path of how to understand creation science better, but to understand health science better. Take a look at what Ellen White says right here. Much of the prejudice that prevents the truth of the third angel's message from reaching the hearts of the people might be removed if more attention were given to health reform. When people become interested in this subject, notice this, the way is often prepared for the entrance of other what? If they see that we are intelligent with regard to health, they will be more ready to believe that we are sound in what? Okay, what is she actually saying right here? It's the last line is the one, not the rest so much, right? What's actually the last line saying to us? If they see that we are intelligent with regard to health, they will see that we are more ready to, they will be more ready to believe that we are sound in Bible doctrines. What is she actually saying about health science right here? We have good science, right? So in other words, friends, I really think that the Adventist church, as much as we have a great creationist, we could probably expand on that a little bit more, if we continue to place emphasis upon health science, people will see, wait a minute, you guys are not unscientific. You guys are very scientific people. Why? Because we understand the human body. That's exactly right. So how do we overcome that barrier of faith versus science? Health science, friends. Health science is very key, even in Christian apologetics. By the way, you know, I always love using this. Do you know when Jacob, the old patriarch, came before Pharaoh in the book of Genesis? What's the first words that came out of Pharaoh's mouth? How old are you? That's the first thing that came out of his mouth. Do you want to know why? Egyptians never lived that long. He saw an old Israelite come before him. He's like, wait a minute. I have to ask this question. How old are you? I've never seen anybody this old. You look at the Egyptian mummies, where they die, 40s or 50s? Jacob was what, 80, 90? 130, 130, that's fantastic. And he was Pharaoh. And Ellen White says that what was happening is the Egyptians were learning about the advantages of the Hebrew religion here. Now just think about that. When they see that we're intelligent with what we believe about health, look, they're going to be like, what else you got? What else you got for us? And this is so powerful. And friends, let me tell you something. Seventh-day Adventist is fast becoming not a spiritual term, but a medical term now. And we need to jump on that. Amen? Ministers, especially those who become intelligent on this question, as shepherds of the flock, they will be held accountable for willing ignorance and disregard of nature's laws. Woo! As conventions, institutes, and other large and important meetings, instruction should be given upon health and temperance. Bring into service all the talent at command. And follow up with work, up the work, with publications on this subject. Educate, educate, educate should be the what? Watch word. And friends, this is such a powerful thing when you begin to think about this. Combining health reform with Christian apologetics, man, that's amazing stuff. Appreciate what Sean's doing over there with this how to get straight A's. It also helps the fact that you look very Indian. That always helps, right? There's a minority group, that's successful right there. Let's go over there, right? It always helps, right? But friends, I want you to understand something. This is super important. Remember what I said earlier? Uh, modern Christian politics is limited, but where Adventism can go, we can step over those boundaries with all the beautiful truths that God has given to us, not just about the great controversy, not just about what the moral law is, but even with regards to science. There's one thing that Paul understood, though. Coming out of this this sort of a debate with those philosophers at Athens, he understood one powerful point, and that is this, that he need to preach more of Christ. More of Christ. Look what Ellen White says right here. There's one great central truth to be kept ever before the mind in the searching of the scriptures. Christ and him, what? Crucified. Every other truth is invested with influence and power corresponding to its relation to this theme. It's only in the light of the cross that we can discern the exalted character of the law of God. Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the what? gospel. He was the gospel. There's this analogy one day, I think it was forget his name, he's an old preacher, he used to say this analogy, and he described this analogy about a woman. One day she was looking at a piece of cloth, and she wasn't sure she was going to buy this cloth at this fabric store. It was just hanging up there. She walks inside, and she says, I'm interested in buying this cloth, but I'm not sure if I should buy it or not. And the cashier said, hold on one second. She goes into the back, she gets one of the other associates there, and the associate comes out with this beautiful dress made with that cloth. And she's just floating around her. And that customer said, I'll buy it. You see, when they begin to see Jesus manifested, these individual truths clothed with the beauty of God, they're going to say, I want that. I want that. You know, I had this funny experience. I shared in a couple sermons in the past with this um, atheist professor just happened last year. I was in that class, and you know, I was praying, I said, okay, Lord, I don't, you know, I don't know how to deal with this kind of stuff sometimes. And uh, one day the teacher said this out of the blue, he said, you know, today's subject, we're gonna cover how, and he, well, this is how he worded it, the maleness of God has led to the oppression of women in the Middle East, specifically through the use of the three primary religions, and then he listed them off, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, and then he spent one minute on Islam, he spent one minute on Judaism, and then he spent 30 minutes bashing Christianity, how Christianity has actually oppressed women and caused them to be second class citizens. That's not what Jesus did, did he? No. But let me tell you something, in a class like that, political science class at Stan State University, whoo, everyone jumped on the bandwagon. They all raised their hands and said, yeah, you know, God, the, God oppresses women. You know, and he makes them feel a second-class citizens, And this is why we shouldn't, you know, be doing this kind of stuff. And blah, blah, blah. And they're just going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, I'm just there. I'm just like, okay, Lord, I don't want to say anything right now. Like, I don't need to say anything. And finally, I just put my hand up like this. I said, can I say something? He said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, it's very interesting. I think when you take a good look at Hinduism, Hinduism actually has female goddesses. But that has not stopped the oppression of women in India. And he said, that's a good point. I said, in fact, when you take a good look at the word that's used in the book of Genesis, um, specifically chapter 2 when God created help meet, that word help meet is actually used several times to describe God's powerful help and military aid throughout the Old Testament. Helper does not respond to a butler, okay? Helper responds to a powerful help, right? And it's someone to be with mankind in that work. At that moment... All the other students, I mean, they just said, well, you know, and they begin to raise their hand. They said, when you take a good look at the scriptures, God is oppressing women. Take a good look at what they were doing in the Old Testament. They were stoning women. They were doing all these things. And, you know, it was so funny. The teacher, he was like, he was listening to him and he says these, "He said these words. So, what do you think, Anel? <laughs> and, I was like, and I said these words. I said, like, this sounds like a Bible class. Everybody was like, ah, you know, laughing at the whole thing, right? And I said, well, first of all, I said, you know, when you take a good look, and this is where the Lord really gave me the right words, Jesus, the founder of Christianity. I said, you saw the way that he uplifted oppressed women. Mary Magdalene who's about to be stoned, and by the way, which is practiced in the Middle East today, I said that. I said, you take a good look at his resurrection. He appeared to a broken Mary even before his own disciples. And as I just began to talk about the beauty of Christ, everyone just became silent. And finally I took out even the book we're reading on the Middle East, and I said, even Jesus would have violated the norms today. The teacher just looked. There was just a pinned-off silent, and he almost needed someone on the piano to make an appeal, right? <laughs> and I just talked about the, just the beauty of Jesus. The teacher just after about a, a few seconds of silence, he looked at me and he says, we're changing the subject now. <laughs> just like that. I mean, just think about it. And this is why Ellen White says, this is our message, our what? What's our argument? Jesus. Jesus, right? Our doctrine, our warning to the impenitent, our encouragement for the sorrowing and the hope for every believer. Paul understood. He understood the beautiful truth of Christ and him crucified. Of all professing Christians, 7th Day Ammon should be foremost in uplifting who? Christ before the world. The proclamation of the third angel's message calls for the presentation of the Sabbath truth. No question about that. This truth, with others included in the message, is to be proclaimed. But the great center of attraction, of what? Attraction. Christ Jesus must not be left out. The sinner must be left to look, led to look to Crowvery. The simple faith of a little child, he must trust in the merits of the Savior, accepting his righteousness, righteousness, believing in his mercy. Friends, I really want to challenge you this. In your discussion, in your communication, with the world, with unbelievers, people who may not be or understand, maybe some of the things you understand, whoever they are, make it your sole desire, I'm going to uplift Jesus. I'm going to uplift Jesus, the beauty of God, and you will see an attraction to Christ like never before. Amen? All right. We are officially done. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we'll just do a quick Q&A if you have any questions, and we're done. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you again for this seminar. God, we pray that whatever was good will remain. And, Lord, we pray that we can take these things and use them to reach out to others. Thank you for the coming Sabbath, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.